It's time for a listener feedback episode, and this is, um, like many listener feedback episodes, this isn't, this is less listener feedback and more the things that listener feedback has inspired me to think about. But that's an important aspect of listener feedback, and conveniently, several feedbacks kind of started suggesting a certain avenue of thought, and and it kind of, there, there was a nice little synchronicity there. So this one is mostly about sort of one train of thought. But as with many trains of thoughts, there are many branches. I'm going to start out with this email from Brad, who sent me a link, ariadnavigo.xyz slash posts slash whatthegnu. This was a blog post that's way too long for me to read on this show. It would be weird to do that. But the gist of the post, to, to sort of boil it down, was that this author, Ariadna Vigo, I guess, believes that Linux and GNU can and arguably should be split, separated. Uh, and not that they're together, but they, they often come together. And and so much so that, that there is, or that I, I don't hear it so much anymore, but you do kind of hear it, you used to hear it a lot, I felt, which was that you couldn't use Linux without GNU. And that's kind of the one of the main thrusts behind the idea of GNU plus Linux or GNU slash Linux. The fact that when you refer to Linux you 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 might also say you might also prefix it with GNU because GNU is such an integral part of Linux because Linux itself of course is just the kernel. Now I've talked about this before and I, I feel like I've probably gone sort of back and forth on it before because first of all, Linux, as as I've said, Linux, that term, whether we like it or not, Linux doesn't just mean the kernel anymore. And I and I understand that it does mean just the kernel. Like that that literally that is what it means. But we can't control the fact that when I say, oh yeah, I run Linux, what I'm really talking about is my whole operating system, like the whole thing. I'm talking about the operating system, the desktop, the different applications that I run on it, the the, the, the technologies from lots and lots of different um, projects. And there's that counter-argument, right? Well, Linux, if it is just the kernel, then why single out just GNU? Like, why would we just say, oh, it's the GNU thing, when really, if you look at it, it's it's... GCC was is what probably compiled the thing, yes, um, but I mean, then you'd have to prefix GNU in front of like 80% of the things out there because GCC is used for a lot. Um, I don't know if it's 80%, but you, you get the idea. Um, and then you've got the – or you, then GNU, of course, really, I mean, wh- what do we get from GNU these days? Well, we get GNU utils, and we get, um, you know, little libraries here and there. Libc, that's kind of a big one. So, yeah, there are some really, really important low-level things that, you know, the quote-unquote Linux developers and, – and by Linux developers, I both mean the kernel hackers and the people who kind of – jumped on the bandwagon once the kernel existed and started developing for this crazy new operating system, they didn't have to come up with a bunch of stuff because GNU had already existed. So whether they knew it or not, some people believe whether they know it or not, they were jumping on the GNU bandwagon. They thought they were jumping on the Linux bandwagon, but actually the bandwagon that the Linux bandwagon jumped on was the GNU bandwagon. Now that's all debatable. It just is because there's there's a lot of question there about intent and and you know whether what does it mean to jump on a bandwagon? If if you contribute to something are you are you necessarily saying that you are intentionally contributing to a larger project or are you just handing them some code and what do you think you're contributing to? And if you say well I'm contributing this because the Linux kernel exists and has made such progress to being a desktop operating system, then in a way, maybe you're not contributing back to GNU. You're, you're contributing to this project. So th- there's this big question of sort of identity and, and terminology and so on. But that was kind of then, and this is now, and now we, we do actually have proof of – not even proof of concepts. We have things that don't use – the GNU core utils, even like the init systems and the and the 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 libc, like those things have been cut out of of certain distributions. I don't know how much of it's been cut out of, for instance, Alpine Linux, but that is one that gets cited in this blog post that Alpine 
relies on BusyBox, and BusyBox has an init system. You can boot off of BusyBox. You can boot your Linux machine without systemd, without BSD-style init scripts. It's just, well, you'd still need some init scripts, but you you can boot it off of, uh, with BusyBox running as the init daemon. PID1, init. BusyBox. It is possible. People are doing it. Uh, and there are alternate libc implementations. There's Musil and um, what is it? Run C and other things like that. So there are there are implementations out there of, of C libraries so that you can run all those low-level libraries and applications off of you know off of this these header files. So it's a reality. It it happens right now. You can do it. Now you can run Linux without GNU, and so there you kind of have to question: Okay, well, is the GNU prefix now necessary because we're not running GNU on the thing, or is it still historically necessary because once again Linux wouldn't even exist as an OS if it hadn't been for GNU there at the beginning, and so on? And then you get back into the old argument of well, what about intent? Like if you didn't think that you were building a GNU system, but you happened to be using the free GNU tools that were provided to you without any kind of caveat in a license anywhere that you have to prefix your project name with the term GNU, do you are are you really is it necessary for you to call the thing GNU something or another? And the blog post goes on a little bit more about sort of how GNU is is actually quite a bad implementation of POSIX. Which I, I think, in in many ways, that's almost it's it's kind of inarguable in a weird way. I mean, you can look at things and just you can look at the POSIX spec and you can look at the way that GNU tools, some of the GNU tools implement, you know, behave, and and you'll see the uh, you'll see a difference. So you could say, well, that's just not that's just not POSIX. Um, and in fact, there are flags in some of the applications like sed and tar. Or no, is it tar? Well, instead, definitely grep. I think that's the one I was thinking of. That that, that there's specifically flags that you can set just just to be POSIX um, to, to be POSIX compliant. So it's 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 definitely not natively or or rather naturally POSIX compliant in in many cases because there are options that you can use to ensure that that they that they behave correctly if you are trying to be POSIX com- compliant. The question. At least the question for me, I don't know if that's the question of the post, but the question for me is where does GNU fit in as as we go forward with tools like LLVM or, or Clang and BusyBox and Musil and, and all the different projects out there that, that are re-implementing classic GNU tools in, in arguably cleaner and more efficient ways and sometimes more POSIXly correct ways and so on. And I don't know the point of that question really. I just think that it is an interesting question, and I think it's a question that on the surface, personally, I, c- I don't care. Like, I don't really care whether GNU, the, the sort of the group of developers and the, that, that, that organization, whatever that is, I don't care whether they're in my next Linux distribution or not. I could sort of, more or less, leave or take them. And in fact, even, I mean, I, I think the, the one thing that I would would not want to give up would be bash that would be sort of an application that i would i would not want to lose although to be fair zsh is a pretty good approximation so even that maybe not not a big deal but that is just on the surface um because yeah functionally as long as the system is the same and it's still open source i don't really care what kind of sort of branding, low-level branding it has on it. But I do detect in posts like these, and I think, I think it's, it, it, I think we would be fooling ourselves if we, if we didn't acknowledge this, but I do detect a, a licensing issue here. And, and whether the, the blog post, the blog post doesn't really get into it. To be honest, the licensing thing doesn't really get in get, come up all that often in the post. That's not the central theme of of this of this post. I mean, it it is mentioned, but 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 not heavily. And it's not saying I want to get rid of GNU because of the license. But I do feel like an open source system that loses the strong GNU licensing is going to ultimately be a weaker open source system. And I think that because we see that happening. We see it happening, well, we've seen it happen in BSD for ages. And if you want evidence 
of that happening in BSD. Then I conveniently have a blog post from the maintainers of curl. And this one I, I do want to read some excerpts of. Um, and keep in mind that this is not all the same train of thought, but it'll all come together eventually, I'm sure. So this, this blog post entitled... Um, well, it's on daniel.hacks.se slash blog slash 2021 slash 09 slash 25 slash curls dash first dash 20 dash years dash on dash the dash Mac. So that is curls first 20 years on the Mac from the curl developer. He says, Mac OS X 10.1. This was the first Mac OS release from Apple that bundled curl. It was a complete surprise to me as well when I realized this had happened. Nobody had told me about it ahead of time. I don't even recall anymore how I figured it out. As I'm not a Mac user and I've never had any direct contact with the peeps at Apple Inc. who were and are responsible for shipping curl on that platform. Not before then, and not after that either. So, um, and he says, the general consensus at the time seemed to be that Apple replaced WGET with curl due to licensing reasons, as WGET had been included in their previous OS X release. WGET is licensed under GPL, and curl comes under an MIT-like license. I'm not sure if they shipped libcurl2 already at that point. So, right there, he's, um, I will say, correctly surmising, and I won't qualify that with how I know it's correct, but I will say that it is correct. He is correctly surmising that Apple is has an aversion to the GPL and does attempt to get rid of as much GPL out of their code base as they can. Um, he says later, I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's an interesting blog post from, from just an open source developer st st uh, viewpoint. It is an interesting post that I encourage you to read. Uh, he says that um, under the heading futile or the subheading futile attempts to help. For a while, I reported security issues we found that would be relevant to Apple product security ahead of time before our releases went public to give them time to react and ship fixes, the same way we send alerts to free operating systems. I stopped doing that because, one, the Apple security people always complained to me for giving them too short notice to react, something like two weeks, which is also the maximum notification time allowed by others. And, two, Apple never released any quick updates as a reaction to my notifications anyway. It took them months or years making my efforts Pointless. Basically, they were just rude. Subtitle, n or subheading, nothing in return. Neither me personally nor the project have ever gotten anything or any compensation from Apple. Nothing. Nada. Perhaps Apple using Curl early on was somewhat of a stamp of approval for some, which helped persuade others that Curl is a tool to trust. Perhaps. Apple has not sponsored the project, has not paid for feature development, has not helped us with hardware, and never paid for support. They don't cooperate with us to help fix Apple-specific issues, nor do they ever report problems to us, which we know they must find occasionally. Apple users who run into problems with Curl on Apple's operating systems regularly contact the Curl project to get us to help fix Apple's products. For free, of course. We never even get a thank you. I have a Mac these days, purchased with my own money, that I use to debug and test Mac-specific issues and problems. Apple is, of course, far from alone in this almost predatory behavior. But this post is about Curl's 20 years of serving Apple customers. Also, yes, Curl is open source, and the license allows them to do this. We continue to ship a product that runs perfectly on macOS and other Apple operating systems. They continue to ship curl bundled with their operating systems. So that's that's what that's what the developer of curl has to say about sort of the, his interaction or lack thereof with Apple Incorporated. 20 years of including curl on their operating system without a bug report, without a thank you, without sponsorship, without feature requests, without any of those things. So well, I guess he doesn't necessarily say feature requests. He says they've never sponsored feature, they've never paid for feature development. I guess maybe they've requested features, but it doesn't sound like it. That doesn't sound like the, the case. So this is the kind of, and, and in his word, almost predatory behavior 
that's the kind of thing that a certain kind of license makes possible. And I think that I, I'm not saying at all that it's um, evil necessarily to to follow the letter of the law of a license. That's what a license is for. That's that's the stipulation of how someone expects to be interacted with. You put that in the license, and if someone chooses to follow the licensing terms, which, you know, legally they're supposed to do or whatever, but just remove legality out of it because that's just an imposed idea, right? Like, yes, we could use force to to tell you to do things, but really, it's just, it, at the end of the day, we just have an agreement among people. And so you're putting a license file along with your code, and you say, I'd really like you to do these things. Now, Curl's license says you don't have to do anything. Essentially, I'm, I'm simplifying. And Apple is following the letter of that license and not doing anything. That's a fair, that's a fair result. That, that's a fair interaction. That's what the license has requested that they do. Nothing. Obviously, something like the GPL, on the other hand, has stipulations. It says what we'd really like you to do in this, if you're going to use our code, is to make the code that you've changed available to everyone else under the same license. Now, in reality, people aren't forced to do that. The, just because the license says to do the thing doesn't mean you have to do the thing. And we've seen that. We see it uh, relatively frequently, not too frequently happily, but, you know, there have been cases that have been brought up against technology companies because of, of licensing violation. They, they've, they're they clearly using some code, but they have not then made that code available, and that is going against the license. And so some people step in and ask for compliance, and if the compliance doesn't happen, then the legal stuff starts up, and people go to court, and people get sued, and it's really ugly, and wouldn't it be better if people would just follow the license? So the GPL, again, removing legality from it, the GPL requests that you make your code available, and it sort of encourages collaboration, and so on. And when Apple is forced to do that, they do it. And we see that. We've seen that before with KHTML. KHTML was KDE, the KDE's desktops, um, HTML rendering engine for Conqueror. And back in, I don't know, 2004, 2005-ish, uh, Apple got a clone of KHTML and rebranded it as WebKit. And it is what runs most of the browsers these days. It is um, it is hugely... Uh, an influential project and i mean it's a pity that it got rebranded i guess but um but the the history is there and they have complied with the license and contributed back and it is it continues to be an open source project and so on so that's that's a big deal and we see regularly as with curl that the more permissive licenses simply don't get the kind of contribution that less permissive licenses do, especially from the bad actors. Obviously, if if we're talking about just a normal person like you or me, dear listener, we're nice people. We want to help out. We want to share. All things being equal, if I make a change to your code base, I will happily send it to you. It's just, who knows, it might be helpful to you. Might not. You're you're free to ignore it. You know, that kind of interpersonal, like, real-world interaction, that's not the thing that we're codifying for. That's the easy stuff. But the real-life stuff, the big, important stuff out there in the world that makes gears turn and smokestacks produce smoke and whatever else we're doing out there, we need licensing for it. We have licensing for it. And if you have a license that says do whatever you want, then bad actors who have no interest in contributing to the, the wider world are going to do whatever they want, and that's what we've seen. And I think that's the, that's my fear in this in this idea of well, let's remove GNU from our system. As I say, I don't mind, and in fact, I quite like the idea of removing GNU from a system or two. That, in theory, I think is is quite important. I think it would be great to have more distributions that were BusyBox based, just for the low-level stuff. I'm not saying I, I need BusyBox to be the primary interface. I, I'm just saying let's make that a thing. Let's let's have some distributions that don't rely on System D to boot up. Let's have some systems that that don't have the that didn't use GCC to compile everything. And the reason that I'm interested in that is is simply because a diverse 
culture is stronger than a monoculture. It's it's just that's one of those base level truisms that I've come to recognize over the years. It's just kind of that's the way it is in in biology as in technology as in sociology. It's better to have diversity. The more choice, the better. Whatever kind of whatever catchphrase you want to sort of invoke, that's what we want. And if we keep relying on GNU libraries for everything and the GNU project for everything, I, I think ultimately, I think I think that's a weaker position to be in than having a lot of different projects to rely on. But I think the undercurrent, the possible undercurrent, and maybe I'm reading too much into Ariad, Ariadne, um, the, the blog post here, um, Vigo, uh, the blog post, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think there's an undercurrent there of, well, the licensing is inconvenient. And let's, what if we g- got rid of GNU to just kind of shuffle that license out of the way? Again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's not, for instance, evil. But I do think that we have to go into that smartly. I think we need to be aware of what the implications of that would be. And if we're weakening the GPL foundation of Linux, I mean, the kernel itself is GPL and probably is always going to be the GPL. Not too worried about that. But the rest of the ecosystem, I do, I am worried about because I've seen a lot of progress. Uh, just in my time of using Linux, it's gotten so much better at audio processing and video processing. and I mean, not processing, but like creation, content creation. I, I, I see it doing amazing things with containers uh, on the cloud, and I see just system administration tools that just blow my mind. All of the and, – and the I mean, Wayland. Heck, Wayland over X. I mean, the never touch a, a, another Zorg.conf file in my life. It'll be too soon. So, you know, there, there have been a lot of exciting developments, and I wouldn't want any of that to go away because there's less of sort of a GPL presence in the code base. And I realize that just having a GPL presence, like that's kind of a vague – thing. There are lots of libraries and lots of projects that use the GPL on a Linux system. And by Linux, of course, I mean the OS, not just the kernel. So so I, I don't feel like sort of shuffling out GC, GCC and uh, GNU core utils and, and libc. I, I don't believe that that would weaken sort of like really weaken the whole system. I'm just saying if that's the start of a slippery slope, let's just be aware that there's a slope there. That if we start shuffling things out and saying the GPL isn't all that great, or some equivalent of the GPL. It doesn't have to be the GPL. It could be, I'll put a, something in the show notes to this license. It's really cool. And Copy left next, I think is what it's called. Some equivalent sort of, you can use the code, but you have to give back. That's the foundation that I don't want to lose. And right now, the, the best the thing that that the thing that stands for that the strongest is the GNU project and I wouldn't want to lose that at the expense of well let's try a different init system or let's try a different uh, um, compiler yeah let's do all of those things let's make our let, let's get a little bit bit of diversity in the way that we build our tools but also let's hang on to that that licensing and those principles that make our OS so strong. And let's have a cup of coffee and we'll talk a little bit about System D. Won't that be fun? our coffee i should mention i should clarify that i'm not i wasn't trying to conflate the emailer which was brad with the blog poster those were two separate people brad was the one who sent me the link ariadna vigo was the is the site upon which the blog is posted and i also don't want to read too much into the blog post well i did read a lot into the blog post so i guess i did want to read something into the blog post those were a bunch of thoughts that were sort of derived from the post to to actually get an accurate idea of what the post is proposing or is saying you should read it yourself i will say that the post's point like the bottom line was a little bit confusing to me i I felt like i felt like there were lots of different point points being made and i don't know that i could summarize what the actual point was the literal last line is, I want cultish followings to end within the free and open source software community. 
I swear I'll always work against that. And I think that's always a good thing. The cultish following um, and the reactionary sort of reactions. What's a reactionary? Yeah, reaction reactionarianism. Both of those things I think are are pretty unhealthy within the free and open source software community, which brings me really nicely into the next topic, which is System D. There is a almost dogmatic rejection sometimes of System D, which often puzzles me. We don't have to act this way. We can just say we don't like this system because we happen not to like it. We have the luxury of just arbitrarily not liking something. For a long time, I arbitrarily didn't like GNOME 2. I mean, I still don't like. I arbitrarily don't like GNOME 2. I do not like GNOME 2. Having said that, actually, there is a little bit of a nostalgia that is starting to develop. And I, when I when I use a desktop that sort of harkens back to GNOME 2, what is it, Mate? Is it Mate or Mate? Or is it Cinnamon? Or is it both? One of those two harkens back to GNOME 2. And when I use it, I always think, oh, this is kind of nice. I, I do remember GNOME 2. And now that I don't have to use it, there is a certain fondness uh, for it. But for a very long time, I arbitrarily didn't like GNOME 2. And that's okay. I don't have to say that it threatens the very foundation or fabric of free and open source software philosophy. But anyway, let's talk about System D a little bit because DeepGeek emailed me and talked about it. And apparently I talked about it in episode 430. Uh, I don't exactly remember what I said. I think I was saying that I didn't mind System D. And he says um, it was it was nice to hear some positive mention of it. But he also says, I did, however, note the fears that BSD developers had over things depending on System D as expressed in Hacker Public Radio's Linux in-laws episode number 40. As many understand it, System D is Linux-specific. Also, I am fooling around with Slackware and did check and found no systemd binaries. On Debian, there is systemd and systemd's init binaries. I do believe that Slackware, being non-systemd, is remaining true to an advertised vision of being the, quote, most Unix-like of Linux distributions. I got curious and tested a few things on Debian. Okay, so this is Clat2 again. I want to pause there and deep geek brings up a, an important point about systemd, which is the fear, which is often expressed rightfully so by the BSD developers, the fear that systemd is essentially fragmenting open source software because you have software out there that's being written that, that depends on some component of systemd, and that component you can only access if, you, if you're running systemd. So in other words, there's a lack of modularity. And systemd, uh, the developers of systemd have written before, I've, I've read it online, I could probably find a citation for this. They've written before that they reject the notion that systemd is not modular because they say, well, there's actually a lot of different projects within systemd. That's proof that it's modular. But of course, what they what they fail to sort of i guess acknowledge or admit is that those components are not independent of one another they're very very tightly coupled so for instance if you didn't if you want to run journal ctl but you don't want to run systemd you just can't do that so journal ctl requires the rest of systemd to work and so if someone out there writes some really great software that relies on journal CTL. It doesn't do anything else with system D, doesn't care what init system you're actually using, but in order to use, you know, some, some feature that that application is, is using, in order for that to work, it requires journal CTL. Well, now you've essentially said you have to run, you have to install the entire, the entirety of system D, because in order for journal CTL to work, System D needs to be installed. That may as well not be modular. That's not true modularity, at least not the way people people expect. It might be modular by some definition of a development process, but for people functionally, that's not modular. And so if there's software out there that's being written that does rely on some component of System D, and BSD cannot install and run System D, then there's a whole piece of software out there that's open source that's useless to BSD. A BSD user could not run that because it needs systemd, and systemd itself is not compatible with BSD. Now, this is concerning to a lot of people, to some people, and I my my thoughts of it, my my thoughts on it are not necessarily the most informed thoughts because I I don't develop against systemd. I don't develop on, you know, I don't develop systemd itself, 
and I do not build software that builds upon stuff that, that System D uses. So very much a user experience kind of um, position that I have. But in my view, technology takes different paths. That's just how it is. That's that's what happens. It's a good thing. It's an aspect of open source that can be frustrating sometimes, and yet, in the end, is one of those great strengths of open source. I mean, it wasn't too terribly long ago that people were grumpy that there were two major desktops for Linux, KDE and GNOME, and it just seemed like, why aren't we just having one desktop so everyone can just work on making one really great desktop rather than two desktops that I personally don't like? I'm saying that as an example. I actually quite like GNOME 3 and KDE 5. I'm perfectly happy with both, actually, but pretend like I wasn't. And and so people would think, thought and said very frequently, and people probably still say it when they first come to Linux, like, why why would you have these two things? Neither of them are what I want, so why don't you just make one thing that answers exactly what I want? And that's a, a, a common misconception, that if you would just grab all the open source developers and force them to do the thing that, that you personally want, then Linux would be perfect. You, you see that kind of thing all the time, and it's not just in desktops. It's also on video editors, and it's on audio editors, and it's on graphic editor. Everything out there that people look at from the outside, they analyze it, and they say, well, this isn't perfect for me, and the reason that it's not perfect for me is because of fragmentation with open, within open source. And to someone who's been living in Linux for a long, long time, one might look at that critique and sort of scratch your head because that's just one person on the internet. There are lots of people on the internet and every single one of them has different expectations, different desires from what Linux could possibly provide them. So there's there's just no way for open source to quote unquote unite and sort of toe the company line, lots of air quotes all over around here because there's no company and there's not really a line, but that could happen, but then you just have one single thing for people to complain about rather than 20 things for people to complain about. And there are still other people on the inside who are enjoying all 20 of those things. So it's, it's, it's just how open source is, and I believe ultimately that that is good. Now, SystemD exists... It is Linux specific, and that's that's kind of rough. It is a little bit of a tough thing to come to terms with, because it feels exclusive. It feels not very good to certainly to BSD. But you know, I'm just not convinced that there needs to be feature parity between Linux and BSD. The differences between them can also be their strengths, and we've seen this before. BSD had jails for. I don't know, decades, I think, is what we found out in a previous episode when we actually looked into it. 1977 or something, they've had jails. Linux hasn't had jails. Linux has had cheroots, but that's not really the same thing. That was an approximation. Or, I mean, that wasn't an approximation, but people saying, oh, you don't have BSD jails on Linux, but you could use a cheroot. That's that's the approximation. Um, and there's really been nothing quite like a BSD jail on Linux until LXC containers, things like that. Like, that's the that's sort of the, the best approximation of a, of a BSD jail. And whether or not that's really um, the same thing, you know, you could still have debates over. So feature parity doesn't exist. I don't believe that it's ever quite existed in the POSIX world, but open source principles still apply. The code is open, so it's technically portable. Quotes around technically, like it's technically portable. That's not the best answer in the world. I mean, still, systemd still exists, and it's still very Linux-specific, and if people start building on top of systemd, then the software that they're writing that depends on systemd becomes Linux-exclusive as well, which just starts to rob BSD of all kinds of potential cool stuff, and that doesn't seem like a good thing. But at the same time, it's kind of silly to tell a developer, well, you can't use systemd. Don't hook into systemd because that means that the BSD people can't use your software, and you wouldn't want that. Well, they probably wouldn't want that, and yet at the same time, SystemD does cover a lot of ground, and if it is, if it has features that are that nice that developers are being attracted to, to using it, then 
why wouldn't they want to build on top of that? I'm not saying we're we're quite at the full meritocracy uh, ideal yet, but in a way, that's kind of what we're doing here. We're saying that developers are going to be attracted to the things that make life easier, and users are going to be attr attracted to things that make life easier. I mean, you can't imagine how nice some of the features of System D really start to shine when you start messing around with containers. Like, it, it's a really, really nice... Uh, there's a lot of supportive technology within System D to make containers just kind of do all kinds of cool things. You can get all kinds of information from them and monitoring and stuff like that. It's, it's really quite nice. I mean, not that I know what that's like, outside of system D I'm just saying with system D there's a lot of integration there that you might you might not know about if you don't do that sort of thing on a day-to-day -day, um, basis and and then there are I'm sure other features in system D that are, are quite nice because you do see people hooking into it for things uh, like I think I don't know does package kit somehow hook into system D I could be making that up but you know there are things out there that people people are using out of system D that are that you have to assume are worth using because otherwise they they wouldn't bother you would think so I'm gonna pause here again so I'm 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 I've paused from Deep Geek's email and now I've paused from my pause so we're two pauses in just to sort of help you orient yourself so I'm gonna tell you a little story real quick about when I was a sysadmin at a place and I was working uh, as a sysadmin and it came to my attention that people were accessing their work systems outside of work uh, using different tools that that the internet provided I mean there was there was um, you know things like Dropbox or, or probably Google Drive I don't know if that actually existed at the time I don't remember and uh, log me in which is a um, sort of a I don't know exactly what it is I forget but it's like a VPN over HTTP sort of thing maybe um, so there there were methods that people were using and and this phenomenon is called shadow IT. It means it, it refers to times in an organization when when users sort of develop their own systems to provide for what they think they need or what they they feel like they need. And it's it's great because it it reflects on users sort of their ingenuity and problem-solving ability and it's also hugely problematic because that there is supposed to be a single point of um, authority when it comes to the infrastructure of a of a business of a company of an organization and with shadow IT you lose out on that you just have a bunch of def different people doing whatever they want and in some cases that that can be really really bad if there's, you know, you wouldn't want someone uh, at, I don't know, a, a doctor's office or something implementing some kind of shadow IT so that they can work on on uh, patient records from the luxury of their own home. Uh, and then, I mean, not none of that's bad, right? That that seems reasonable enough. But what if the 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 fear is that that person might make an uninformed decision and and use some application that isn't secure in any way and then you've got privacy concerns because now now you're you're potentially exposing a bunch of information through you know some kind of like http uh signal rather than https or rather than some kind of vpn tunnel so it could be problematic and that's just one example it could be a doctor's office it could be banking information who knows stuff you don't necessarily want exposed or potentially exposed the IT department is supposed to be able to guard against that so shadow IT can be uh, very very well or film film information too you wouldn't want f scenes from from movies leaked out that way so anyway um, shadow IT can be very very problematic for an IT department and the you know one way to combat that is to set up uh, firewalls and 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 things to intercept these these sort of bad systems but even though i was fairly new to sysadmining i recognized that this was a call for this was a feature request and and the organization that i was at wasn't very organized anyway so there really wasn't any sense of what 
a feature request might actually look like, a formal feature request. Even though I invited people to come to me with ideas and requests and things like that, just people don't aren't aren't necessarily trained to stop before they open up that Dropbox account so that they can put their work information on someone else's server so that they can then go home and work on it. You know, they they don't think, okay, well, I should I should pause and I should go ask if there's some official way to do this. Because to them, it feels very natural. It's just what they would do anyway at home, so why wouldn't they do it at work? Now, that brings up, this, by the way, brings up a whole bunch of thoughts about how a company or an organization should be handling sort of IT in the first place. But the place that I was at was not the place to to formulate that. It was it was very, very poorly managed. Um, and so I saw the shadow IT as a feature request, and I, I took it upon myself to throw uh, up a NextCloud install so that people had a reliable way to access things from from home. And I um, started working on a VPN connection and so on. So there were there were a bunch of things that that you know sort of the evidence of these things made me realize, okay, that's a feature request. I will now try to resolve the shadow IT issues by providing official avenues to do the same thing and then and then broadcast that those official avenues are available and that they should be used over these other solutions. That's my little story from the trenches. And now I'm going to unpause and get back to system D. System D, I think, if you are a hardline Unix philosophy, everything should be split, nothing should ever be tightly coupled, and and so on, or you just happen not like systemd for whatever reason, or you can't run systemd because you're on BSD, I think the solution to the systemd problem, quote, systemd problem, close quote, so this problem, the solution isn't to say that systemd must die, because obviously people are using systemd. Now you can you can look at the major distributions and some of the not not so major distributions and most of them are using systemd at this point and you can say that that's some kind of conspiracy that red hat has uh, bought the the allegiance of of lots of developers all over the world or something or or that red hat has so many developers um that that they sort of represent some kind of sort of weighted market share of what people want and and since they're being paid to love system d then that's what they're using or 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 whatever you know you could blame red hat and seuss combined or canonical and seuss and red hat of course canonical had their own system for a while they they were going against system d and then they decided to go with system d so that's interesting and then debian you know the, you got lots of groups big groups that don't traditionally collaborate or or corroborate and they're all using system d so you, even if you're a conspiracy theorist and believe that it's all some kind of Illuminati um, th- uh, sort of master plan to destroy Unix, which, by the way, is ridiculous, I think. But you know, I've I've learned more. Uh, I've learned better to to argue against conspiracy theories. That those that's just a a path best left to best left alone, actually. So I'm not going to do that. And and. It doesn't matter anyway, even if it is a conspiracy, even if it is true. It doesn't matter. The point is, so I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll say, yes, it's a conspiracy. So whether it is or is it, it's not, systemd is being used in a lot of distributions, and people are using it. The solution to that, I believe, is to treat that as a shadow in its system and come up with alternatives, or go into the code that is relying on systemd that's preventing your... OS from using that thing and code around it. Develop things that provide the same information that System D could provide that would then enable those applications to run and so on. So in other words, I don't believe that the the solution is to dismantle System D because I don't think that's well, I don't think it's productive. I mean, it isn't, right? It is literally destructive. It's saying I see the huge structure that you've built that's obviously working really really well for a lot of people and i would i I want to break it and get rid of it that's just not that is literally not productive so the more productive way like again i'm speaking very literal here like literal productivity 
the the literal productive way to get around system D would be to build the alternatives that you need for there to be uh, feature parity or compatibility or portability once again. And that's a tall order, and it's easy for me to sort of theorize that that's what we should all do if we're trying to avoid sort of system D eating the init system and and all of the open source software. Um, that is a tall order, and I, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that would entail. Um, but I do know that BSD has, like, literally implemented a Linux compatibility layer uh, quite quite a while ago now. So, you know, there there's already been work to sort of bring things back to the center. And in my mind, from where I am as a Linux user... Uh, I'm really enjoying the the leaps and bounds that Linux has made within the past 10 years or whatever. And so it's very difficult for me to sort of say, well, yeah, we should slow that down and and make sure that we're we're staying f- feature for feature the same as BSD. And I I don't believe that BSD would would want that really either. Um I'm not saying that BSD people necessarily appreciate System D, you know, like that. I I get that because it doesn't work on their OS. So yeah, I see that. Um, but I I just don't. Yeah, I think that the differences are good, and that the connections need to be made to make them negligible, rather than any kind of idea of sort of destroying the differences, and and making them making them the same again, because that's not really what we want ever I don't think I think we want that separation we want that um well we want to avoid the monoculture we really do and and I realize that POSIX is not a monoculture that it's just the portability specifications but at the same time I, I think there's a lot of room where where differences can be very good and ultimately that that might be something that we really appreciate um for one reason or another and i don't know what those reasons will be i'm just saying at some point we might appreciate that there are major differences between the two systems and i i think it's important to kind of keep them keep them keep those differences those are our strengths okay i've unpaused deep geeks emails and i'm going to continue down uh, his his uh, tests with Debian. So he says, I got curious. This is Deep Geek again. I got curious and tested a few things on Debian. I thought you and your listeners would be interested. Debian is unique, as far as I know, as it officially supports SystemD's init system as well as SysV init. However, SystemD itself, that is to say its core, is automatically installed. I decided to spin up a test cheroot to check a few things out. I discovered that issuing the command apt-get remove systemd did remove systemd. It also automatically removed systemd-init and installed sysv-init. I noted that runit can also be installed, but it does not seem to be included in the automatic system. Here is where I put a package manager hold on systemd. I proceeded to install Firefox ESR. This did it without a problem. I then test installed the following browsers, Conqueror, Chromium, Midori, Epiphany, and Falcon. Those browsers asked for systemd or systemd's PAM module as recommended in the apt package system, but installed without them. I noticed that the following desktops, te- desktop environments would have installed without systemd if I'd gone through it. KDE, LXQt, Mate, or Mate, XFCE. However, GNOME's dependencies, especially on its required component GDM3, that's the GUI login manager, um, required systemd and and would not install without it. I'm with you in the attitude of, if systemd's functions are useful to developers, okay, but I am also BSD curious enough to keep track of what's installable without systemd. Perhaps someday somebody, as a goof, will create a Linux distro that uses all systemd modules as its base. That should get the community in a roar. And that's the end of the email, so this is Klaatu again. So that's a great email, really interesting points raised, obviously, because I talked about just the first paragraph for a couple of minutes, uh, more than a couple of minutes. And the, I think 
there's a lot going on with system D. I think we all see that. There are lots of reasons that people don't like it. There are obviously reasons that people do. As I've said, developers are clearly enjoying the the things that system D is making possible. Different types of users are enjoying system D features. And and so it's silly, I think, to say, well, we can't have system D in the world either because I don't like it, which it, uh, that's not me actually saying that. As I've said before, I actually quite like System D. I'm saying it's silly to say we can't have System D just because somebody doesn't like it or some group of people doesn't like it. We can't say we can't have System D just because BSD will never adopt it. And therefore, if BSD and Linux both can't have the thing, then we can't have the thing. That's silly, because otherwise we, we wouldn't have a lot of different things. So the difference in our open source operating systems can be viewed as a strength there it, it is all open source there are ways to bridge these gaps it's just a, a matter of people figuring out the best way to do that you can you can believe that a developer has sort of an innate obligation to ensure that their open source code is as abstracted as possible. And architecturally, that might be really good. Or you can say, well, build what you can build and trust that other people will swoop in behind you and either make the the code more abstract or build the bridge or insert the shim or whatever they need to do to provide what your software thinks. You know, all of these things are architectural issues and in open source because we have developers coming in from so many directions it's kind of one of the things that we just that that's kind of built into open source is that sometimes you get someone who just doesn't know about this other connector and so they build their own or so they build it to a different connector when you wanted it really to go to that connector and so you have to you have to rewire it some sometimes. You have to create a new branch with a rewiring, or you have to make a new configuration, or, or something happens, and those those connections have to be made. I don't see that as a bad thing, and I think that if we as an open source community pretend like we can't handle this, then we're exposing a, a serious weakness of the open source philosophy, more so than System D itself. Sure, System D oversteps its bounds. Sure, it, 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 it tightly couples things that should not rely on each other. Fine. But we have to be resilient enough as a community to be able to handle that. And I think we are. That's, that's the good news. I, I, I mean, it's happening. It's happening right now as we speak. We see other distri- we see distributions providing different init systems. We see different distributions uh, making making it possible to install stuff that you know normally uh, supposedly wouldn't be possible. And and for the record, I think that some of the things that DeepGeek was talking about there at the very end of his email, that's not a system D issue anyway. That's a package management issue. If a browser isn't ask it doesn't actually need system D to work, then it shouldn't be insisting that it needs system D to work. That's that isn't system D. That's the packaging um, scheme. Whether it's the packager who who put system D in as a requirement, even though as a runtime requirement, even though it's not, or whether it's just too too much, you know, the the structure of package package managers to being too reliant on on what a definition of a dependency is. I don't know. I I don't use Debian enough to really be able to analyze that um but i mean rpm and dnf have the same issue you know they as far as they know system d is a, a central component a, a core component of the system and you cannot remove it uh really very easily at least n- not within the rpm system can you redirect stuff sure you can but i mean it, it's not it isn't graceful but again that's not that isn't system d that is a distribution issue and whether it's an issue or a feature is up to you. I I I tend to think that it's an issue. I I don't think that I would build something with with quite that many requirements. I feel like the init system should be one of the many components that users should be able to choose for themselves. But that's my feeling. And if you're building a stable distribution where you want to minimize variables, we've I've I've talked about this before. You simply have to limit the scope of what you support, and that is a completely fair model of of support. I remember this in a you know really small compared to a big project like Fedora or Red Hat or or Debian or whatever. Um, 
I, I feel like back when I was doing a lot of work with uh, post-production places and building systems for that, uh, it was right around the time that FFmpeg had sort of been forked off into libav. And and it was it was brutal trying to you know trying to sort of well yeah to 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 think of supporting both libav and ffmpeg was just not a good time that was not fun and and I got to the point where I just said ffmpeg is what I is what I will support and if you want to run libav for some reason then you can do that but the minute you run into trouble I'm just going to uninstall libav and install ffmpeg because that's what I've tested, that's what I can sort of vouch for, those are the command options that are valid and so on, and as much as libav tried to uh, sort of claim that it was a project that was, I, I remember them saying essentially that it was a drop-in replacement for FFmpeg, but it wasn't. It, the, the command options started to, to stray from one another, and it caused real issues. Now imagine that for an init system. It's, it's, it's understandable. But hey, in the end, the point is that we have an embarrassment of wealth here in open source when it comes to to choice. If you want to choose one init system over another, you can. And admittedly, that might mean that you don't get to run the exact distribution that you think you want to run. I don't personally know off the top of my head right now where I would turn if I wanted an RPM distribution without systemd, for instance. But certainly there are Debian-based distributions without systemd, and there's obviously Slackware and Gentoo and Crux, and a couple of others, I think. So we have a lot of opportunity to choose between what we arbitrarily like. We don't have to justify what we like because nobody's asking. We can do whatever we want for any reason that we want. And that's a great place to be. And it's starkly, starkly different than what choices are offered in the proprietary world where right now all I can hear about on the tech sites is how you have to upgrade to Windows 11 or something right now. I don't know why, but that seems to be the the general consensus is that everything is falling apart and you have to go to 11, and 11 is the worst place to be. I'm not really sure. I don't understand it. And then, of course, in the Mac world, people just do whatever they're told whenever they're told to. They seem to love anything that happens uh, except those who don't and then threaten to leave and then never leave. That's the that's the life cycle in proprietary software, and it's just so miserable. I mean, it really is. I don't mean that in a, a condescending way. It's just I've been there, and it's a miserable place to be where you just you have no out. And in open source, we do, and I really appreciate that, and I'm not willing to give that up. And if you think that System D is forcing you to give that up, then change away from System D. And you'll be surprised at how at how rich an experience you can have outside of System D. And if you're not sure, try a System D distro sometime. You'll be surprised at how rich an experience you can have inside of System D. It goes both ways. It's all open source, and it's a developing project. Everything's always a developing project. That's exciting in itself. I think that's everything I've got to say about these subjects. I'm not really sure if there was a, a clear train of thought there. Um, but somehow it all made sense to me as I was saying it. Next time we're going to talk about RCS and probably Ruby. See you next time. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
Okay, I'll do it. But afterwards, I'm leaving for my vacation. Definitely, irrevocably, and finally. <laughs>